What's cracking, lovely people? It's the Big Feed Up HQ podcast, episode 40. I'm just going to let this out now. I played rugby for the first time in five years, and my voice is a little bit hoarse and croaky, but that's fine because my guest today is fantastic, extremely knowledgeable, and I'm just going to basically pass over to him and let him do his thing so you don't have to hear me scratchily talk through things. Anyway, I've got Dr. Peter Foley on the show. He's a GP who has a postgraduate qualifications in sports and exercise medicine. Really interesting combination of things. I'm looking forward to getting into that. And he's currently in the process of running an RCT explaining the effects of certain types of nutrition advice for patients with pre-diabetes. So we're going to get into all of that. We'll understand what an RCT is. But first thing, Peter, welcome to the show. Thank you, Matt, and thank you for having me on. It's, uh, it's, it's a real pleasure to be one of your guests. Uh, I've been a fan for quite a while, and uh, it's really great to, um, to get the nod and to be asked to be one of your guests. So I really hope uh, your followers enjoy this. And um, yeah, I, I'm looking forward to getting cracking, as you'd say. Hey, 100%, 100%. And the good thing is you can, you can fill the show with knowledge bombs because, yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a little bit scratchy. But anyway... I think the fir- the first thing we do is is obviously dive straight into understand how you got into specialising in diabetes, you know, working, researching. Let's just hear a little bit about that first. Um, okay, well, I guess what would be probably useful for your listeners is to kind of know a bit more about me, really, to kind of put me into context. And I'm not sure if you've known, if you've come across that really useful YouTube video by... Simon Sinek, he'd actually have a TED talk about challenging what your own personal why is. Mm. And and for me it was, well, I wanted to go into medicine from a very young age and I thought, well, I want to help people and, and kind of have that vocation to help people and make their lives better. So medicine was a, a, an obvious choice and I was lucky enough to get a place in Exeter and Plymouth uh, to study that. And then I went on to do general practice training based in Somerset. And unbeknownst to me, I just found that the system of education and my experiences, it seemed as if we were dealing with patients on a fairly constant basis who were suffering from lifestyle-related conditions. Mm. And often there was a a type of patient who um, often had very similar issues, be that poor diet, being physically inactive or having sedentary behaviour, um, and that often lended itself to other issues like high blood pressure or uh, pre-diabetes or type 2 diabetes, and often that could be associated with having weight gain as well. Um, and I was always interested in sport, um, playing rugby myself, um, I always was interested in how I could merge both of those interests together. Mm. And I was studying for my sport and exercise medicine postgraduate qualifications in Bath University. And that course is very, very interesting for people who've done it. And it very much focuses on the elite athlete. And as you'll know from your work with Worcester and your work with the team in France, elite athletes are are geared very differently to the rest of us mere mortals. Mm. And they represent about 5% of the population. So... I was doing this course as a GP, thinking, how is this? How can I apply this learning to my patients in clinic as a GP? And what really resonated with me was a sport nutrition module, um, and I know that will be of particular interest to you. And what also resonated with me very much was a population health and motivational interviewing mm. module, where we had to identify a patient in clinic who we wanted to use certain motivational techniques with in order to uh, achieve improved lifestyle behavior. And it was, a, it was through that kind of journey of discovery that I thought, okay, I've got these skills set now in sports medicine and motivational interviewing coupled with general practice. And I thought from my final year original research, I wanted to focus on a population who are living at an increased risk of type 2 diabetes mm-hmm. um, and they're living in this pre-diabetes range uh, because lots of patients live with this without symptoms unknowingly often for for many many years and, and sometimes for decades and that can lend itself to bigger problems down the line so 
that's really how I got involved in the in the MSc, and I'm currently in my ethics stage of that. So going through the very important loops and hoops which are needed mm. uh, to to make sure that this is done properly and ethically, um, and I'm doing that through my um, one of the GP surgeries that I work at. So that, that's quite interesting, um, and it's been a very interesting journey. So my real hope is that I can make a dent in this. Um, global epidemic really and there was a very interesting article which came out a couple of weeks ago which suggested that we spend one billion pounds a year in the UK on diabetes medication and of that one billion 90% is spent on type 2 diabetes of which there is a significant link with lifestyle choices mm. so I thought wow if I can if I can help in any way in, in, in this so um, I've I've had a play around with, with certain clinical situations at work outside of the of, of the research trial and some of the results I've been lucky enough to see quite significant results without significant time being put into it so it's often a low cost intervention mm-hmm. with significant cost savings and also significant patient uh, significantly improved patient outcomes so that kind of gives you a bit of a context of to kind of where I'm at mm-hmm. and I, I'm trying to really combine my passion for helping people with my experience and learning around sports medicine and motivational interviewing and using all that together to really go back to my why and to really help people um, to achieve their best health, health goals and health outcomes. Okay, I'm really keen to get into the tools and tactics around some of the motivational interviewing techniques yeah. you have. If we step back a little, what's the kind yeah. of uh, journey for for a patient to to get in front of you? Do, do they get um, tested via via right, blood tests? Right. Are there is there a kind of um, yeah a, a process? I think that's quite a good place to start. Okay, yeah, that's a good place to start. So I see patients. Uh, if I have several roles at the moment, but if we take my traditional GP role, yeah. Uh, the, there are certain pathways within which a patient can be sat in front of me. One of those pathways is that they're seeing me for something else. So they may be seeing me for a health-related condition, and I may have a throwaway comment, kind of standing, opening the door for them to leave and drop a comment. That's one. So it's 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 a totally um, uh, just in the moment. I just kind of is it okay if we talk about lifestyle or just some kind of throwaway comment that was just um, just throwing it out there. Mm-hmm. The second, the second is if someone comes to me about a, a lifestyle-related problem, and I'll go straight in and say, you know, can we discuss your lifestyle? I mean, I'm gonna go in kind of at the start of the consultation. The third way in which someone will see me is if they're referred to me via one of our nurses in the surgery or via one of my colleagues. So either a patient has got type two diabetes and they're at the stage where they need more medication. Mm-hmm. Um, often they'll be offered uh, a, a consultation to, to see me to see whether we can avoid that um, or other colleagues who feel that a patient may benefit from motivation but from, from a different aspect or, or a different angle. So there are many different ways in which I can see patients, but only the, the, the only patients I've been seeing for this have been within the surgery itself. Um, and uh, it's been very, it's 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 been very interesting seeing different people on their own different stages of the change journey, really. Mm. Interesting. And then for for people that um, are new to the show as well, I've also interviewed one of one of um, our mutual friends, um, uh, an, another GP, and um, you can obviously listen to that shows with John. And the striking thing with with you guys, obviously around what I do in nutrition, um, in in the sports realm and in and in nutritional therapy of Nuffield, I have an hour initial consultations. I have forty five minutes for a follow up, and then obviously that's they they know they're coming in to directly talk to me about nutrition within their lifestyle. Yeah. Whereas whereas you guys have often what eight minutes to to cover you know so many things. So I suppose it's your your skill set to be able to then understand right the person's come through this avenue that you know th- this is the the most important thing that i think we need to address and then often like you said it, it comes down to not just talking about the medication it's it's yes nutrition or or how nutrition fits into into their lifestyle but then what packaged up in eight minutes ten minutes it's challenging 
Absolutely. Um, and it is very interesting. And I think to go back to the channel, the channels in which patients come to see me. So if a patient comes to see me, uh, had, had they've effectively been referred by a nurse or one of my colleagues, they already come, and if they do come to see me, mm. they have already made that decision that they're going to discuss lifestyle with me. So they're coming in kind of ready or in the kind of in, in the preparatory stage of behavior change, if you like. So that's often an easier consultation to start with. The more challenging ones are where on, you know, a patient may be pre-contemplative or they may not be quite ready to make that change. And you're just trying to sow some seeds um, say, listen, you know, as you may be aware, uh, you're at a risk of pre-diabetes tear and there are certain lifestyle elements that we could focus on. If that's something that would be of interest to you, please come back <clears throat> rather than, you know, effectively banging your head against the wall with somebody who's just not quite there yet on their journey of improving their health. Mm-hmm. And we're all at different stages of, of, of change in all of our lives, both professionally and personally. Uh, and uh, I've, I've, I've learned over the years that there's that great phrase, isn't there? You can bring a horse to water but can't make it drink. Yeah. And for, many, and for many years, I was thinking I was doing the right thing by bringing patients. I was almost, I guess, in my naivety and my junior kind of uh, work as a GP, thinking, I'm going to tell you what you need to know. This is all kind of in my, in my own kind of subconscious. I'm going to tell you what you need to know. But in fact, I wasn't getting there why whatsoever. Mm. So my whole, my whole tact of all of this map now is, What's important to you? Like, what is your why? I don't phrase it quite like that, but I'd say, okay, Matt, what is it that's important to you and how can I help you? And to give you a, an example I use quite often is of a, a gentleman who came in to see me. He was referred in to see me um, because of his weight and he was also pre-diabetic. And I said, okay, um, what's important to you? Because I knew what was important to me was improving his blood tests, mm. improving his waistline, and just making him happier and healthier and maybe reducing some of his medications. He was in his mid to late 70s and he said, you know what, Doc, what's important to me is if I can bend down and tie my shoelaces and not get out of breath, I'd be happy. Mm. And I was thinking, wow, OK, like we're on like we're on different pages here. But if that's what, we, if that's what, if that's what we're working with, let's go with it. And then we've identified some key motives for change, some shared goals we have. And we took it from there. And then 18 months later, he was four stone lighter, um, walking around, not getting breathless, going to the supermarket. And, you know, there, there was no way I would have said to him, I'm going to have you lose four stone at day one, because you just don't. You, you don't know where that journey is going to lead you together. But it, it struck home with me that um, you've got to see where they're at mm. and what is their key driver. Because I could sit there and say, your HbA1c is too high or you're abdominal circumference is too, is, is, is too large, but that's not going to mean anything. So it was really, it, it's, it's been a real leveler for me over the last couple of years to really put my misconceptions to one side mm. and really hammer home on the individual person. What is it that we can make you better? How can we make you better? And I guess on that, it's quite interesting. Uh, one of the models I use is by Dr. Jen Unwin, uh, which is called the GRIN model, and it's an acronym. And the G stands for goals. The, I, uh, the R stands for resources, the I stands for increments, and the N starts for no, stands for noticing. And I really use this quite regularly at the moment. And, 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 and the goals, but it's shared goals. So what's important for me, what's important for you, and let's see how we can make something shared and have a shared purpose together as that very important relationship. The R is the resources. So are, are you a patient who's going to need to come in and see a nurse every couple of weeks for a, for a weight change? or? Are, are you going to benefit from referral to some websites for further information or leaflets? Mm-hmm. I think the I think the I for increments is probably the most important for me because we use this zero to ten. Uh, I'm not sure if you use it in your clinics as well, but the zero to ten uh, tool where I might say to you, okay, Matt, it's important that we um, let's say you you've said that you want to lose two stone. I said, okay, yeah, that's interesting. On a scale of one to ten, how important is that to you? Mm. And you might say, okay, yeah, it's, 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 it's a seven. And I'd say, okay, and on a scale of one to ten, how far are you on that journey of change? And then often might say, I'm a three out of ten. Mm. And I'd say, okay, well, it's not a zero. So that's, that's good. And if it's a three, how would you know when it's a four? Mm. 
So rather than having this huge contextualized, I need to lose weight, which is quite an arbitrary thing, it's actually, okay, what's that going to look like at a four? Or if this didn't go well for you, what would it look like if it was a two? And it's all the things, and I find that's quite a useful way of getting into their kind of real why and challenging and nailing them down, is it? Uh, and I really look at lasting change. And, and, and there's often a discussion about short-term goals can often be can often be uh, unrealistic and unhelpful for long-term behaviour. Um, and the example of getting ready for summer holidays, that kind of summer bod, or mm-hmm. that kind of, I, I, I try and rephrase that because I don't think that's helpful because that looks at short-term behaviour for a short-term gain, which may end up in having lasting negative behaviour around food food behaviour. So I'm looking at really lasting change to, to improve health over the, the long term. But certainly that model I, I, I use quite regularly. Um, mm. And also, you know, you, you take your weights and things. Um, but I like to go back, I like to go way back in the patient's journey on, on the patient's story. And we use different software, different IT software in our clinics. But generally speaking, if, you, if you're a patient at the surgery and, and you're in your 30s, 40s, 50s, I often would ask if I can pull up your weight graph. And I'll say, you know, can I pull up your weight graph? Is that, is that okay? Because you may have mentioned weight being important to you. Can we just see what that's looked like over the last 10, 20, 30 years? Mm. And we do, and, and, we, and we pull up the graph on the screen. And I, I'll often print it out to the patient to give it to them. And it's incredible what you can learn from somebody's journey. Sometimes they've had very good control of their weight, or others you can, other times they, they can identify times when they may have gained weight, which would coincide with personal difficulties or change in job situation. And there's obviously a, a long list of why that can help. But I use this at the start just to say, listen, this is quite a long journey that you've been on. Let's take this as day zero and let's move forward. And then when well if and when they come back within six weeks three months six months they often come in saying get the graph up what's the graph like what's the graph like? and they see it just drops down and they're so proud mm-hmm. and it makes me so proud and i know that the, that the behaviors that they're learning are, are are very healthy because they're they're focusing on whole food and they're using exercise as, as an adjunct to enjoying their bodies rather than as a tool to lose weight um, and it's just so uh, powerful and it's, 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 it's a real honour to finally feel like I'm addressing my independent why and helping them on their journey to improving health and very often that has led itself to taking patients off diabetes medication or helping people to, to lose significant amounts of weight in a very healthy and slow way mm. and developing a healthy relationship with food which is a really important thing obviously to address um, and I think it's very interesting we do live in a world where if you're of a certain age you may refer to social media as the holy grail of body image and information and food and diet but as a GP working in the southwest most of my patients with these metabolic issues uh, would be in their 40s through the 60s so they're not really on this they don't have this uh, barrage of, 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 of different information sources and different information quality um, so that's a barrier I don't have to really work with um, which is quite helpful um, and that was one of the real reasons I initially started up my social media work was to kind of help people to help patients to see what you can eat if you you know if you focus on whole foods and it doesn't need to be difficult or challenging or expensive um, so that's kind of how I started that kind of journey, really. Mm. I like that quote you say. Was it exercise to enjoy that? You know, the patient that you work with, exercise to enjoy their bodies um, rather than to lose weight. That that was really good. Oh, absolutely. Well, it's funny because there is a misconception. I think. Um, oh, well, there's a misconception in my opinion that people often give diet and exercise an equal 50-50 split mm. um, and people will think okay you know um, and we're coming into December January and you have that new year new me and invariably what people tend to do and this is only from my own experience of patients is they, they'll often join a gym or they'll get a bike and they'll have a whole new lifestyle change on January 1st and they'll do an, uh, a 
new diet, a new gym routine or a new exercise routine. And that might last for a couple of weeks. And then all of a sudden, they may slip back to their old behavior. And because they may have missed a couple of workouts or they've changed their diet again, that can often reinforce uh, food guilt. It can reinforce exercise guilt. And it can reinforce people that they may be destined to be unhealthy or overweight or have pre-diabetes. Um, so I really try and avoid that split of uh, diet and exercise. So I look at, um, uh, I look at patients and, and, and this is not to discredit the role exercise has. Exercise is obviously a key role in many factors and we're learning more and more about this all the time. So the folks on exercise, quickly or briefly um first of all i like to avoid the term exercise with patients because i think it often is has negative associations so i try and use the word physical activity or reduction in sedentary behavior um the next thing is weight uh, exercising should always be seen as enjoyment rather than a punishment mm. and as soon as something is seen as being a punishment it will be it will fall down people's list of priorities for that day or for that week or for that month. My real focus and my real passion in helping people to improve their health outcomes is through food. And this is always a very contentious issue, or certainly can be. And one of the approaches that I use, Matt, in this is I say to patients, okay, rather than giving diet and exercise a 50-50 split, I want you to focus on 90% of the food you're eating and 10% exercise. Because if you take most people, and for some reason, well, most people in clinic will say that they have three meals a day. And I say, okay, that's 84 meals a month. I say, okay, it's 84 meals a month. I say, okay, so you have 84 options, 84 opportunities a month to make food choices. Um, so let's focus on making those 84 better. So if, if we take 60 out of those 84 or 65 over, the, over those 84, you're gonna make much better sustained lifestyle change than trying to exercise every day of the week, which is unrealistic and probably not needed. And what I've found from my clinical experience is that once we give patients that freedom to forget exercise and, it, and they always seem it's very unusual for a doctor to say forget exercise for a second but what invariably happens is by the time three four five weeks comes along patients often will self-report that crikey i'm eating a lot better and i feel better and i've got so much more energy that i just want to go out walking or i've, I've dusted the bike down or i've joined that gym again so lots of uh, our our expectations on patients are to make this huge change at once and then you, that, that's the way it is however patients often will get to that themselves and i find that we all love food and we all have our own relationships with food and when we focus on 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 kind of real food for want of a better word colorful food food that's in season um that's local um and try and reduce the the, the heavily processed foods or the the um sugary foods um, it can make a significant impact for people and rather than them seeing this as a as a an unrealistic challenge which is um difficult uh, they often find that it's a much more easy and enjoyable journey than they than they would have wanted and of course the population of people with pre-diabetes or diabetes when you actually hammer it down to what their understanding is it's often uh, lacking um, and it's often associated with fear and confusion and very often associated with guilt and embarrassment um, and people are afraid of diabetes and it often is linked with uh, lifestyle behavior um, and certain tweaks which we can make on that journey for patients can lead to significant improvements and my experience through patients with diabetes or insulin resistance is that if, if, if we reduce the ultra processed foods and if we reduce the starchy foods and the sugary foods um, they can um, 
creating so by, by, by getting their protein requirements right and they can often say you know I'm, I'm not hungry at lunchtime anymore so I just don't I eat when I'm hungry and I don't eat when I'm not, not hungry rather than um, patients often self-report that if they have um, breakfast they often might snack at lunch <coughs> sorry they may snack mid-morning and then have a snack in the afternoon after lunch and there's lots of interesting work coming out about time restricted feeding as well so looking at this feeding window and looking after the microbiome it's a very interesting time around food and health and nutrition and medicine and it is often an interesting i often get asked about well i'm not a nutritionist and i guess i'm not a nutritionist and i'm not a dietitian but the the fact remains that i see this as a twofold issue one is that unfortunately um, the way medicine has been taught in medical school uh, there is little education on nutrition be that in medical school or in gp training that becomes an issue when if you were to ask any patient in clinic they would expect that we would be experts on food and the reality is that we're not and secondly um, if I'm faced with a patient who has lifestyle-related conditions, and if I know that su- that subtle adjustments of food can be made and can make a significant improvement, I feel duty-bound to go there with the patient. Now, we have dietitians on the NHS, but often um, they are quite overstretched and there's quite long waiting lists to see them. So um, I would open that discussion with patients, respectfully, not as a dietitian or a nutritionist, um, but as somebody who has um, seen significant health improvements uh, on on certain approaches to eating, um, and that's I guess how I f- how I came into this space really. Mm. And that I think it all boils down to, like you said, it's that key motives for change, identifying that with the individual, and then obviously we can take a deeper dive into specific recommendations around foods. But like you said, it's stacking good habits and working you know working off that from there from each individual and and I think it's it's refreshing to explore that with you because you you have so much experience around speaking to people in terms of their yeah their behavior change rather than us diving straight into being like right uh sweet potato is better than a white potato because of this but it's really actually you know what why are you wanting to think about potatoes in the first place how's that relevant to you that kind of thing yeah so i think yeah, it's, that's why i wanted to get yeah, you on yeah but, but thanks matt i mean i'm really trying to strip this back um i try to strip the whole thing back and the beauty of 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 this space is that the potential for making significant health improvements for this subset of the population um can be significant and when we when i explore food with patients or even when i explore food with colleagues there's often a a misunderstanding i think about food quality and there seems to be a slant towards a a low fat approach which can work for many many people but equally if you're choosing a yogurt which is zero percent fat but vanilla flavored that may have significant additives that you might not be aware of. And if you look at the, f- the food labeling, you may see, oh, actually, there's quite a lot more ingredients than I would have anticipated in this. Whereas if you were to take the, the, the whole yogurt, which is unproduced, you know, there's no additives, mm. and add in some blueberries or, or some nuts or whatever, um, it's just re-educating around that, really, saying, okay, um, how can we get you to enjoy your food better without... Um, but, um, unintentionally having lots of processed ingredients and there's lots of debate about which is the best diet for anybody and as we all know reading the evidence there is no best diet yeah and 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 the low carb space is a very contentious one um but when you strip this whole thing back it's looking at food which is natural which is local which is in season and if you have an issue metabolizing sugar hence if, if you have diabetes eating sugary food mightn't be the best thing for you. And what's often interesting with patients is I'll often say to them, okay, where is your sugar coming from in your diet? And often they'll say, well, I don't have sugar in my tea. And I very rarely have cakes or biscuits. And often they may not have uh, sugary foods. But when you 
realize that a starch molecule is a line of glucose a, a, a starch is a line of glucose molecules so food which is starchy can be broken down to the body into glucose molecules so when i have this discussion with patients i say you know you may be doing all that you can in terms of the food choices you're making however if you're having starchy food which doesn't taste sweet it can still cause a high blood sugar reading and i find this a very interesting discussion with patients and many patients have got blood sugar readers so they'll test their blood sugars throughout the day and i say hey listen for patients who are having issues controlling their diabetes i'll say don't do anything for two weeks and check your blood sugars both before and two hours after you have your meal and come back and see what it is and it's often maybe 10 12 13 so, so quite high and say okay now try eating these foods so more of these and less of these on a kind of a spectrum mm-hmm. and then check your blood sugars and come back to me and often they say wow like my blood sugars are between six and eight now and i may be having less potatoes or i i, I may be having one instead of four or i'm reducing portion sizes and increasing protein and green vegetables in this plate uh, and that re-education is very helpful because patients love a value they love seeing it themselves and seeing evidence so if they say listen my blood sugars have gone from between 10 and 12 and now they're six and eight that's much better because the um we want to keep the blood sugar uh, levels roughly between five and seven um uh, so if if, if if you're non-diabetic it tends to live in that range if you're if you're diabetic it can be higher hence the need for medication so so that's one of the key uh, behavior change models i use is to bring things right back down to basics. How mm. can I help you today? Mm. What does tomorrow look like? And what's your why? What's mm. your ultimate goal? Sure. And I think... And that's very helpful. Yeah, people, like people listening to this as well, I think you brought up a good point around monitoring because um, I think testing and not guessing is, is interesting. And I, I don't know, obviously, you, you'll have more expertise on the, the type of, of, of bit of kit, but, you know, a glucometer, something simple like that, that that yeah. people can use to test their blood sugar. People aren't really doing it enough. And, and now, obviously, with all these services around finger prick and blood testing, and people keep asking me, oh, what do you think of genetic testing? What do you think of all these food mm. intolerance tests? And I was like, just go just go away and test your blood sugar. It's so simple to, to do that on a, on a, not daily basis, but, you know, how do you respond to a meal? And then, like you said there, I'm, I'm big on, okay, let's, let's tweak the total or let's tweak the type of food in that meal yeah. and then retest. Like I use yeah. um, with clients like three T's, really simple total type timing. And then we okay. might we might do some simple little tests and then similar to you, they come back and they're like, wow, you know, that, that wasn't, a, a, as I thought, a sugary meal, but I, I reduced the portion size of X or I changed the type of food to X and I saw a different response. And I think for listeners... Yeah. That, that's a really interesting tool. I don't know if you can elaborate on the, the self-testing side of things. Um, it's not really an area that I've got much experience in. Uh, if, if I'm honest, I'm, I too get asked about um, different diets now, and I'm, I'm very reluctant to kind of give patients, you know, they often ask about alkaline diets or other diets, which I must admit I've, I, I'm not familiar using or, or, or any patients where I live or work use it. Um, when it comes down to having pathology and when it comes down to having an issue with, let's say, diabetes, um, the self-testing can be very helpful to re-establish that understanding of what food can do to my body. Mm. When it comes down to individuals, well, let's say a young population who are interested in health and fitness and they may be working in London or Bristol or any, any or in the countryside for, for, for that matter, um, I don't tend to advise using these self-testing kits because I think people should explore what food works for them. I think people need to um, have a healthy relationship with food. Uh, People often talk about intuitive eating and talk about the time-restricted feeding. Um, And, you know, there's a huge craze now about eating, you know, um, hashtag clean eating and stuff. I'm not quite sure what hashtag clean eating actually means. But, you know... You can, uh, as part of one of my uh, projects recently, I ate a week uh, for a week as a vegan, and I was quite struck by. I mean, I, I was sticking to a whole food vegan approach, and what struck me was, you can eat a certain life. 
you can eat a certain way, but you could have a very poorly nutrient, a poor nutrient quality diet mm. by eating as, let's say, a vegan or a low carb or whatever it is, or keto, whatever it is. But as long as you focus on the nutrient quality and the nutrient density, you're going to be getting your your macro and micronutrients and you're going to be giving your body the fuel it needs to work for you as best as it can and we're now learning so much more about this exciting microbiome which is a, a constellation of vast microorganisms living within us um, who need good proper food and they're designed to munch on all the natural food groups that we have and i'm sure you may see as well but certainly in general practice we see lots of uh, issues around irritable bowel and when you when you break down people's diet and lifestyle, um, often there can be uh, significant gaps there in the nutrient quality. Mm. No, definitely, I agree. So I don't. I mean, to give you the, the short answer, I don't tend to advise testing kits. Um, I don't tend to advise on intolerance t- kits. Um, because as an NHS GP, that's not something that we offer. So it, mm. it, it uh, patients are very free to explore that themselves, but not having any experience in that. Uh, I don't feel like I'm the best person to advise because I'm maybe giving wrong advice. No, no, it makes sense. It was it was more on the yeah the the, the blood sugar um, regulation and testing, but on the same, I don't you know the food intolerance testing side of things. I don't really think the science and stuff's there. Like I'm aware of, yeah. like you said, it, it's obviously not a conversation for for today, but the microbiome and the stool testing and stuff it's exciting but it's very expensive and again like you said there's from my point of view there's so many things i can do before advising a 350 pound test where someone has to spend three days taking their own you know stool sample that's quite that's quite a tough process for people as well so but any but i think that that space that space like you said is is very interesting and and it's going to be a lot more applicable in the next, you know, soon. Um, but I think maybe we move on to, because you've given us so much value around your own experiences working with individuals. Who who do you like to follow or or read about? You know, when when you're also cooking and and obviously you know making your sixty five meals a a month. You know, being on point. Who who do you like to uh, to kind of like gain information from or is there anything you'd like to direct the listeners to is that in the in the food space i think yeah well obviously kind of general yeah you you know you're you're very food focused we've we've obviously gained that from 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 this episode but i think yeah we or maybe i'll turn it around to you and say what where do you take foodie inspiration from and then maybe on a wider you know wider conversation at the end if this this lifestyle kind of medicine and, and approach you know wh- where you think that's going to go and, and who people should look out for that kind of thing okay yeah well, that's, I, I, I can definitely run with that I really like the idea when it comes to cooking I am very lucky because uh, or I feel lucky because I grew up in a household where my mother uh, had studied domestic science or, or home economics as it was known in Ireland and I grew up in a home where meals were cooked and meals were cooked from scratch so I grew up in the kitchen with my mum asking questions about this and that and, and I probably took for granted what food literacy and what cooking skills I developed just by being at home and many people don't have those um, those skills so I, I felt that I was starting off at a good point and I also happened to really enjoy cooking, I enjoy the process of coming up with a recipe or if I have friends over or even just, just for the week, I like meal planning and making sure I get plenty of colour in there. Uh, I choose to be a, an omnivore, so I have I eat from all major food groups, um, and I try and mix things up. I really like uh, chefs like Otto Lenghi. I think he's really uh, a, a, a real genius around food. Um, mm. I, tr- I really uh, buy locally, uh, and I, I, I buy in season. Um, having said that, there are supermarkets I shop at, and... Uh, although other supermarkets are obviously available, I try to <laughs> focus on the and little side because I just find the value is so good. Uh, and you just think, crikey, and, and, and I, I do my best to make sure I, I, I'm buying foods, especially veg, which are being created uh, and, 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 and grown here in the UK. Um, and for me, cooking is 
this is quite a buzzword moment. It's, it's a bit of mindfulness for me. Um, I'll just kind of zone out. I'll, I'll happily get involved, get my sleeves rolled up and start cooking. Um, and I like cooking in batches, which means that I'm kind of... I, I, I don't count out uh, ingredients. I don't count macros. I have a fair idea of what my kind of targets are. Um, I have used my fitness pal on one occasion for a week, and actually what I thought I was eating, I was eating, so that kind of reaffirmed my... My understanding of kind of what my my macro splits would be not that I su- that I suggest people necessarily need to do that, but it can be a useful tool. Um, and I just I always cook whole. Um, I don't really buy sauces or packets or that kind of thing. Um, and I would say I stick to uh, this way of living ninety percent of the time. So you know, I'm a young lad. I'm out drinking with my mates. Um, I'll go out. You know, I may have fast food. Yeah, but certainly it will be very, very rare. And um, I really do enjoy uh, knowing where my food's coming from. <clears throat> I really enjoy tasting the quality of the food and being in control of kind of what food I'm eating because I feel that's important to have that high-quality food because it's just so important for us. Um, and, yeah, I, I don't really follow many chefs, I'd say. There's quite a famous book in Ireland called The Avoca Cookbook, um, which is, is well worth a look if any of your listeners uh, are unfamiliar with the work that Avoca do. Um, a very good cookery school and very nice traditional Irish foods. But to be honest, it's quite similar to here. It's it's uh, it's your pies, your um, mm. your fish, chicken, your meats, your sauces. Um, and I'm definitely more of a uh, a savoury man than a sweet man. So I don't tend to make any any um, puddings and things. But um, uh, a a bit of Dark chocolate goes just fine for me. Mm. But yeah, I, I, as I said, Matt, I'm lucky that I've got relatively good food literacy, good cooking skills, uh, and I happen to enjoy the process of cooking. So that that puts me onto um, onto a winner straight away, really. Um, and even looking at the impact that that can have on patients, I have a patient who comes to mind who, um, sadly, he was recently bereaved, and his weight increased, and his H, his his diabetes blood test kind of went off the scale. And the only thing that happened was he went from having his wife cooking his food every day to eating two or three microwave meals a day. And that in itself, within about six or eight weeks, um, made significant impact on him. And it really, it really struck home to me, really, how such a definite change in lifestyle could have such a massive change on health in a short space of time. So we, um, we managed to find a way that he could, he could eat better food. And within two or three months, it was back to normal again. So... Um, Lots of uh, easy, ready-made meals can be good. Um, unfortunately, lots cannot be good, or you know, certainly may have a lot of added ingredients that you might be aware of, and the food quality um, may not be there. So, uh, yeah, I feel lucky that I've, I I grew up with cooking skills. So I'm I I wouldn't in any way say I'm a I'm a, I'm a fancy fine dining chef, <laughs> but I certainly do food, and I do like my food quality. Cool. Now that's good, and um. I don't know if you heard, mate. Ottolinghi has a has a podcast. It's quite it's quite good, but he um he cooks. He gets he gets guests over and he cooks. And I think it was to do with his most le- um recent book. I think it's simple or something. So I've listened to a few, especially people that are listening as well. It's 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 quite it's quite interesting because he gets chefs on. They talk about food, and for for me, I I might put that on while cooking, and I'm exactly the same as you after work or whatever. Having having a day where you have more intricate, detailed, precise conversations with people around food, I like to just yeah switch off and and enjoy cooking and and listening to other things and I, I completely agree it's it's a great process and is, um, that the, um, is that the simple pleasures podcast yeah 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 I've, you should I've, dive into that I've heard about it. I'll definitely dive in I am um, just on a, on a personal note I quite like listening to. Uh, on a, on a non-medical, non-cooking uh, uh, slant, I listen to a guy called Gary V. Mm. I'm not sure if you've come across Gary V. Gary Vaynerchuk, um, who's quite a personality over in America, but all about kind of being true to yourself and your own goals and your own kind of uh, ambition and drive and stuff, which is which is you know I quite like as a as a kind of a, a switch off really. Um, and then being a keen Irish sportsman, I have uh, as I usually have some kind of sport on the background, so hmm. be it a podcast uh, or be it be it rugby related. Um, mm. But I, uh, I mean, 
to give you context, like my patients that I'm looking after are, are, are in Somerset, so um, they may not have heard of Atalingi and they, they might not have heard of, of, of other kind of celebrity chefs. So I really keep things very simple. I just essentially um, will get patients to find out what they actually like eating, what they don't like eating, and bring it right back down. Yeah. Um, and, and I feel if uh, I feel personally very interested in food and food quality and, and chefs like Otelengi are, are inspirational for me um, but I have to think about how I can help a patient on their journey and uh, that so using these types of chefs as in uh, for want of a better word fancy or elaborate could actually be a barrier for people to, to change if they try and take on these these recipes um, yeah. uh, which of course is a misconception because many of them are very simple um, and some patients will find these chefs themselves and find inspiration from what they cook and what they use. Um, but when it comes to advising food, I don't, uh, I don't tend to advise them more than giving patients lists of food which are are um, are uh, stratified on their on their various macro nutrient uh, qualities and quantities, mm-hmm. and uh, give them a bit of a free range from there, really. Sure, and I, li- I like. There's also an easy site around around you talked about seasonality so eat the season for people that are listening um is 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 a good site and especially around understanding a bit more about certain types of foods at certain types of the year it can be quite powerful because like you said it's everyday ingredients but if you can get those kind of things up and and you have one or two resources or sites or like you said you you now understand where foods fit in then you can start to kind of piece that together and think like, right, I'm going to buy X from this supermarket or wherever, and it's going to give the best value. And then once you have it in the house, you can kind of go from there. And, and, and like you said, it's about adapting your environment, stacking good habits. And um, no, exactly. it's fantastic. I'll, I'll give you an example. I had friends over the weekend and we had a roast chicken for, for dinner. And um, I cooked up some, some Brussels sprouts, but rather than boiling them, I, I kind of parboiled them. But then I took on some some lardon, some chili flakes, paprika, and creme fraiche. It just kind of it makes this food, which is often perceived as being boring or kind of not very nice, to actually oh that's very interesting, interesting colours and textures. And um, uh, you've got lots of different yeah, you know, as, as you said, eating the rainbow. So your your red cabbage, white cabbage, broccoli, all these colours, vibrant colours. And you know, if there's one thing to take away from the discussion today, I hope it would be that people would take away you know don't eat beige if you can, just try and stick the colour. Love that. Well, I think. Go on. You know, um, uh, and it's about you know what's actually in this food, and it, it is. And another way of looking at it is, this may have no relevance, but it's something I like to look at is how heavy is the food? Like how heavy is an avocado? It's quite heavy, but how heavy is a a bar you might buy, which might have a stamp saying gluten free, sugar free, vegan friendly, and is it actually you know what's in this food? You know. Um, so uh, try to avoid the beige, the beige brigade. Mm. Yeah, I love that. Okay, and then where where can people find out more about what you're doing? Social media. And I know I know we haven't touched on some of the other work that you do, and I'd love to get you back after you've come back from travelling. But you know, people just want to yeah, yeah. just just see yeah. what see what you're up to before um you know b- yeah, before so we get I'm you back on. If, if I'm interested, I'm um, I'm involved in a company called. Uh, Diabetes Digital Media, who have a, a, a branch called diabetes.co.uk, and we're working on something called the Low Carb Program, which is a 10-week evidence-based and quality-assured uh, NHS-approved um, behaviour change model, which looks at uh, which looks at informing people about food choices, about macronutrients and behaviour change. Um, if any of, our, <coughs> any of our listeners are healthcare professionals, they will have free access to the site. Um, just go to lowcarbprogram.com low uh, where you can learn about what we're trying to do. And essentially, this company have gotten in touch with me to try and work on shared goals, which is empowering people to make lifestyle changes. And one of our, our avenues is the Low Carb Program. We're developing others as well. Um, but we're trying to do what I do along with other GPs in the UK, but doing it at scale. So if, if you're a patient in Aberdeen or if you're a patient in in Truro or Salisbury and you haven't got a doctor who does what I do you can have access to the material I, I use and my approach which is hopefully going to be at scale for the wider population um, people can find me uh, on Instagram uh, Dr Peter Foley um, and I'm sure you'll have a link to that on your um, on your site Matt and then for any patients uh, sorry excuse me for any listeners 
uh, on Twitter, you can find me there where I post a bit more of my evidence, uh, and that's at Peter Foley underscore seven. Um, so I hope that's been really helpful, Matt. It's really great to kind of chew the cut and get really down and to kind of just to strip away a lot of what I talk about uh, with patients because there's often a misconception as somebody who who can be an advocate for this way of life. Um, it doesn't need to be anything more complicated than eating seasonal, colourful food. Mm. And if you're if you have an issue with sh- sugar metabolism, like, like diabetes, and um, eating sugar and eating starch. Uh, may have an unintended consequence for you um, and that's really kind of pro- pro- how I try to help people and really get down to understanding what their inner why is and how can we get people to rather than bring a horse to water but not make them drink how can we support them on their journey of lasting lifestyle change mm. and mate this is exactly why I started the podcast because it is a you know it is it's a canvas for having these kinds of conversations it's a longer format we can we can be open and honest and um, I think I'm gonna have more of these kinds of episodes and people like yourself on exploring food and and, and lifestyle and and um, yeah just conversations around these topics that that are on a level that anyone can tune into and listen to. I'm a huge Absolutely. fan of intricate you know um, very specific podcast blogs and things like that, but. No, I, re- I really appreciate you coming on. And I think this is going to be the start Pleasure. of a kind of, yeah, like a nice series of, of, of exploring the why, the behavior change and all these kind of things ar- around food and around um, lifestyle. So I really appreciate it. Well, one of the key, um, oh, oh, one of the nice phrases I've heard recently is sort out the why before the how. So finding out what is the internal change and, you know, what's your why what's your why so so it's a question that i often find myself asking patients all the time and, and i often challenge my own internal why but i think once you get that first step done and i strongly recommend the, the simon senak video uh, it's on youtube and she has millions and millions of views and he really looks at kind of hammering down this why and he uses a great example of he uses a great example of uh using apple as a as, as a case um, for this kind of concept of challenging. Um, to give you a bit of context, his YouTube video has got uh, 41 million views. Okay. So, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's a TED Talk. It's, it's definitely worth diving into. Cool. Okay, guys. I'll, okay, I'll link to everything that Peter's talked about in the show. As always, if you like the show and you already subscribed, mega. If you haven't given me a rating or... A, uh, you haven't told someone else about the show, definitely do that. I release these longer form kind of uh, conversations on a Monday and then Friday sometimes I'll do some solo pods. Um, so yeah, just check them all out. Again, Peter, thanks very much and we'll speak okay. soon.